Hi, everyone. Please turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 5. We're reading from verse 19 to verse 30. Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these, so that you will be amazed. For just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the son, that all may honour the son just as they honour the father. Whoever does not honour the son does not honour the father who sent him. Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged but has crossed over from death to life. Very truly I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge because he is the son of man. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. Our second reading is from Ephesians chapter 2. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But... Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in coming ages he might show show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we pray that the power that raised Christ from the dead, your power, we pray that power would be at work in us today, Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So today is a simple message. Get your Bible open. It's Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. It's a simple message, but do not let its simplicity fool you. This simple message is also profound here in the Apostles' writings. It's deep, it's life-changing, and I believe it's world-altering. We're going to look at 
10 verses, that's all, 10 verses from the Apostle Paul, that is Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And there is, at the center of it, a miracle. In the original language, it's actually only three sentences. Verses 1 through to 7 is one sentence in the Greek. Verses 8 and 9 are another sentence, and verse 10, a third sentence. But it has one big idea. These 10 verses are some of the most important verses in the Bible. In preparation for doing this talk, I said to myself, Justin, just don't stuff this up. Let the text speak for itself. So I'm going to go through it basically verse by verse. Ephesians 2, 1 to 10 is a before and after picture. Verses 1 through 3 are before. Verses 4 through 7 are after. That's the single sentence. And verses 8 to 10 are two implications. Here's a classic before and after. For you teachers. Before the school year, there you are, bright, wise, and happy, but the kids come after the school year, ragged, jaded, and tired. Lots of teachers laugh at that and can relate. This is not that. In Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, it's not recording a decline, not a decay, rather the opposite. It is nothing less from, than moving from death to life. Here's another one, the classic before and after picture, the one you all know and don't believe. I had to look for about 15 minutes to find one that was suitable for your eyes. You can't unsee such things. Before, I was overweight, but, but, right, but, I followed a program and afterwards I was fit and healthy. This one's at least positive and hopeful, but this is not that. This is not, this is not, I followed a program, I swallowed a pill, I figured out the key to something, I did self-improvement. Ephesians 2, 1 to 10 records something someone else did. Someone else performed the greatest miracle on me. I am indeed passive in Ephesians 2, 1 through 7. We're in a series called Resurrection Hope. God has been transforming lives since 1833, and today we explore the biggest, most miraculous transformation of them all. Some of you might ask, if it's not already obvious, why this passage, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, when we're doing a series on resurrection? After all, isn't the resurrection something that happened to Jesus, as Rob explored last week? So why this passage? This passage is about now. Or maybe the astute among us will think it's about the future, that we will be raised as he was once raised. Now, we'll get there, Mother's Day, May 14. We'll get there to the future. But why this passage, since this passage is about what, on the whole, what is about the present state of things? And the answer is in our text, of course. Paul writes in verse 4, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive. There it is. He made us alive with Christ. It's a sense in which he brought us out of the tomb. He made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in, 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 in the tomb of our transgressions. 
And later he'll say it explicitly, God raised us up with Christ in verse 6. So three points today, verses 1 to 3 are before, verses 4 to 7 after, and then two implications ahead of an exploration of it next week with some sister passages. So firstly, before we were, all of us, writes Paul, and yet you have to reckon yourself to this text, all of us were dead, he writes, and enslaved. You came here for some good news. You're going to get it. Paul writes that your condition before the thing God did was worse than you thought, worse than you imagined. He writes, as for you, you were dead. And you say, okay, that's worse than I thought. I assume my spiritual condition was satisfactory, maybe even healthy, especially when compared to others. As for you, you were dead is a, is a diagnosis of sorts. You know, yep, dead. This is the kind of diagnosis where the doctor says there's nothing we can do. Not because there's no treatment. That's normally when doctors say there's nothing we can do, there's no treatment. The reason why the doctor says there's nothing we can do is because the patient has already died. And Paul writes, that's you, all of us, he says. But you say, how was I once dead? I'm still breathing and haven't stopped breathing since my first breath. Paul, of course, is writing metaphorically but don't mistake him, he's also describing a profound reality, as metaphors often do. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. They were the tomb in which you lived. Your transgressions and sins left you not just a little bit bruised, but rather dead and needing a resurrection. Obviously, from verse 2... Paul's speaking metaphorically because he goes on to say, in which you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live. So it's clearly a metaphor. You were dead in the, in the way in which you used to live. You lived a certain way, and while living that way, you could be described as dead. Now, Rob Forsyth, after 8.30, the person who spoke last week, he pointed out to me that, of course, I knew this, but I'd forgotten, the word for live is the word to walk. You were dead in, in the way in which you used to walk. So clearly a metaphor. Of course, I resist talking about zombies, dead walking. Um, or I do it like a good zombie film from time to time. What was that way that we walked? And the answer is it was an enslavement for... Paul writes, you were following someone, just not God. Three times in verses 1 through 3, the word follow appears. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, verse 2, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. And when you followed the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who disobeyed, Disobedient, you follow the ways of the world. You were, it's the air you breathed and everyone around you believed it and so you got in and you walked behind them. It's, it's the natural way to sort of be Australian, to follow, you know, to say, well, wh what is everyone around me doing and then doing that? Paul writes the same following is in fact the following of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, a way of talking about the 
presence and power of evil, of Satan himself, the spirit who is at work in those who are disobedient because you need to be liberated to find God. But in other words, you basically did what everybody else did, which is explicit in verse 3. Note, by the way, that what follows is not a list of debauched behaviour. You say, say, well, I'm not living a terrible life. Well, there's no list of a terrible life here. It's just going along with the world, with everyone else. You didn't look to find God and then live for him to yield. And so, writes Paul, the devil found you and you did his bidding. And then how do you do his bidding? Is it by murder and mayhem and racism and foul behaviour? And not here. Bad sexual behaviour? No, not here. Not in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Rather, you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. You didn't even know it, but you were just doing what you wanted to do. You followed your desires. You followed your dreams. It's right there in verse 3. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. The word flesh there isn't what some people think, which is that you're indulging in some sort of sexual behaviour or fantasy. The word flesh there in the original language is the sort of word that means base human. It means to follow your human instincts, to not care about God and to do life with him, you following your desires and your thoughts. I love it when people say to me, Christians just follow what the church says because the church wants to control them. as if everybody in Australia isn't getting in behind and following something else. You say Christians only believe because they're following the church's teaching, unlike us who don't follow anything. We just follow our own hearts and pursue our own dreams. I'm like, isn't that just following Disney? Didn't you just follow the ways of the world? It's often... uh, a confession in the Anglican tradition, and this is the one that I chose for our confession today for a specific purpose, although through technology you, you missed it. But this is a, a stunning line. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We followed our dreams, pursued them like they were gods. In Rory Shiner's little book, the World Next Door, I have a copy, I'll give it to you. There's one on the back table. The way you buy it is by going to that Churchill Links. It's an exploration of the Apostles' Creed that we said a moment ago, worth doing. But in this book, Rory asks a question. Um, it's a simple one. It goes like this. Why don't people believe? Good question. If belief in God is reasonable, as Rory argues... And if God has gone to the trouble of revealing himself, as Rory argues, then why don't more people believe? Now, that's a good and difficult question, and there'll be a myriad of answers. But Rory offers a very profound one. He says, the truth is, we humans, it turns out, have a dog in this fight, a conflict of interest when it comes to God. Turns out, we're the dog in the fight. We're the ones trying to protect ourselves. We want to control our own lives. And people explicitly say this. We want to determine our path. 
We want to work out what we believe is right and wrong, and because we're sort of convicted about what we believe is right and wrong, we believe other people should believe what we believe is right and wrong. Tell me that's not Facebook. It is, of course, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden to want to determine right from wrong, to follow our dreams, to make a name for ourselves, to self-protect, to do our own thing. And so Rory goes on and talks about the fact that because we have a dog in this fight, ourselves to protect, we often suppress the knowledge of God. We have something at stake, our pride. But he says, it bubbles to the surface. This, of course, is why Jesus was repulsive to good people who had a vested interest in protecting their reputation, and it's why Jesus was attractive to morally dubious people who lost their reputation decades ago. Jesus himself said, the great physician, the master diagnoser, if such a word exists, he famously said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but those who are ill. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so if you read verses 1 through 3, and if you insist it doesn't apply to you outside of Christ, then congratulations, you're the healthy one. But you don't need the doctor, you lose the healing that Jesus offers, indeed, life now and beyond the grave. Paul writes, all of us, me included, writes Paul, me included, we live this way. Now, you might say, look, I'm, I'm, if I look at that and think, am I staring in the mirror, does it, does it fit me? I think verses 1 to 3 is Paul's way of saying, without Christ, we're not just lost, but dead. Not needing just a moral compass, but in fact, a resurrection. Not least of which is that Paul links this mode of living, this mode of walking, not only to death, but indeed to the wrath of God, verse 3, like the rest we were by nature. There it is. I think that word by nature is, is really what he means. We were by nature, so inherently deserving of wrath, uh, which isn't God flying off the handle. It's his just settled anger at all that is wrong and evil and unjust. And right there in verse 3, Paul then links each of us to Adam and to Eve, as in Adam, all the sons of Adam, as in Eve, all the daughters of Eve who followed Adam and Eve, who followed the devices and desires of our own hearts. And Paul here in verse 3 linked us to Israel, who followed their own ways to the exile, to indeed a death, which is exactly what the prophet Ezekiel says in Ezekiel 37. Read it tonight. The prophet has a vision of Israel trapped in her sin and with it the wrath of God. And the vision is a valley of what? You know what it is? You know what it is? A valley of dry bones. A sea of dead people. And God asks the prophet in the vision, can these bones live? Ask a doctor, by the way, to treat a pile of bones. Ask a doctor to treat a valley of dry bones. And she will say, these bones are above my pay grade. I don't, I've got no, nothing to say to bones. But the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel 
Then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the people of Israel, walking dead in their transgressions and sins. They are the people of Israel. They say, our bones are dried up, our hope is gone, we are cut off. It's hard not to think that Paul had that verse in mind when he wrote Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. By the way, guess what happens to those bones when they hear the word of the Lord? See, resurrection. So secondly, after. We find ourselves alive and liberated. In verse 4, you hear the beautiful and famous word, but. But because of his great love for us. I'm not the first to remark that this but is the best but in history, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, who is rich in mercy, that line is redundant, given what he said about his great love for us, but he's laboring the point. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. He brought us out of the tomb with Christ. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, in our transgressions we were in the tomb, a valley of bones. It wasn't that we thought, well, I should, you know, I'm a bit sick and I should just you know, take the treatment. No, I was dead in the tomb. And because of his great love for us, God made me alive with Christ. It is therefore by grace that you have been saved. God's love, great love, his rich mercy, by his grace, this is the reason you and I have salvation if we're in Christ. The redemption offered, the forgiveness of sins, and make no mistake, Paul is saying that in a way, if you're in Christ, you have already experienced a resurrection, verse 6, and God raised us up with Christ, alive with him, and indeed seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ. Now next week we get to explore what being seated with him in the heavenly realms means, especially since your feet are planted firmly in the ground with a huge inbox, a big day at work ahead of tomorrow, some great co-workers, maybe some bozos you've got to deal with, all those difficult things you deal with in work, your feet are planted firm in the ground, and yet the apostle says, in some form, you've been raised with Christ and seated with him there. We'll explore that more next week with some sister passages of Ephesians 2. But here's the key. What happened to Jesus then has happened to me now. Not just in the future, but in the present. And it is a transformation. So his life is my life. His death, my death. His resurrection, my resurrection. His liberation from death, my liberation. And here, amazingly, his ascension is mine too. I'm currently seated with Christ in the heavenlies. What does that mean? We'll explore it next week. Two weeks in a row on the now. And why did he do it? Verse 7, to communicate something. He did it in order that in the coming ages, in the future, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. That, by the way, is the end of the first sentence. But what is at the centre of this before and after picture? What's the change agent? You see, with the 
school teacher, what's, it, what's the change agent? What's the thing in the middle? And the answer, of course, is a bunch of ratty kids um, and a whole heap of compliance. What's at the centre of uh, the weight loss one? A program, usually, that costs money and a promise to all who can self-improve. Well, what is at the centre of the before and after of my salvation? You guessed it. A resurrection. Not a moral compass, but a resurrection. And God says through the prophet Ezekiel, then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord. When I open your graves and bring you up from them, I will put my spirit in you, my breath in you. It's a second Adam moment. I'll put my breath in you, and you will live, O people of Israel. But we are found not in, in Israel, but rather in an Israelite. In the New Testament, we are found in Christ, which we'll explore next week. As Jesus himself says, Alex read it a moment ago, very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word, it's hard not to think that Jesus has got Ezekiel 37 in mind, very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life now and will not be judged but has crossed over from death to life. Not be judged. Eternal life now. No condemnation now. A new life now. Lost and found. Dead but alive. Says the father of the prodigal, but we had to celebrate and glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. The Christian claim is remarkable that there is a direct link between an event that happened 1900 and 90 years ago, it's about 10 years till 2,000 years, get your mind around that, there's a direct link between an event that happened in 1833 and my life right now, not layers and layers and layers of events throughout history, but through simple faith a direct link between him coming out of the tomb and my life. You were changed when Christ left that tomb. You have been raised from the dead. You have a new life. It wasn't just that you needed a moral program. It wasn't just that you needed a, to be a bit more spiritual, a sort of spiritual lick of paint on an otherwise good life. You and I, we needed a miracle. The biggest one of all, and we got it when Christ walked out, of, walked out of the tomb. That's the implication for the resurrection for now. But Paul offers two things in this text. We'll explore more next week. But two things in this te text. Firstly, it, it has a worldwide, I believe, but certainly personal, a worldwide antidote to boasting or, or arrogance. Because one implication of this text is you didn't follow the program and get better. Rather, you followed your own heart to the grave and found death. But Paul writes in verse 8, and listen to this, by the way, lean in because the next words you hear are possibly the best words you'll ever hear. He says, For it is by grace 
that you've been saved, and through faith, maybe the faithfulness of Christ and your trust in him, it's by grace that you've been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, the grace and the faith, and it's not by works, so that no one can boast. It's by grace you've been saved. People don't realize how humbling that is. You know, if you say to somebody, I'm your friend, but only because of grace, try saying that to your spouse if you're married or a dear friend. I love you, but by grace alone. There's something profoundly humbling about this gift from God. You can say with your hand and your heart, not me, but God, I'm the sinner and Christ the Saviour. And I take it that if a person is claiming to be in Christ and is beset by arrogance, then they need to ask themselves the question, do I really walk in Christ? But for those who are in Christ, humbled, you are now liberated to live the life not towards self, not curved in towards self. That's verses 1 through 3. But rather of a humble life curved outwards to others and upwards towards God. And so the second implication is that you are then created to do good works as God's piece of artwork. Verse 10, for we are God's handiwork. Right? God chiseling out something beautiful created in Christ Jesus to do good works, the ones which God prepared in advance for us to do, not the ones that you forged because you're such a good person. You are to do good works, but not because you are, if I could put it this way, woke, because you've awakened yourself to what's wrong with the world, which, of course, could potentially lead to looking down on people who don't think the way you think. But rather, you do good works because God awakened you up from death. He raised you from the dead to do the things that he's already blueprinted for you to do tomorrow. And you just need to be open to him and humble before him. You see, there's a power at work in this transformation. And the context of Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 is Ephesians 1, 15 through 23, which is about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and about God opening your eyes now. So I want to leave you with this word, and I do want to say this, that what I'm about to read is exactly a reason to sign up for Alpha, or at least to pray for your friends to join. Because Paul writes in Ephesians 1 verse 18, he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Who knew that the heart had eyes? I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. What is that power? That power is the same as the mighty strength God exerted when the Father raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms. The same power that raised Christ, raised you. Amen. Let me pray.
Father, if this be true, then everything changes for us, for our world. We have been raised in Jesus Christ, our Saviour, to live a new life, not curved inward to ourselves, but outwards to others and upwards towards you. And so we stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. But he does, and we then cry out, singing, how marvellous, how marvellous. Amen.